In 1982, the historic Kansas City neighborhood of Westport was home to the Westport Flea Market, where you could find all sorts of interesting items. And in the Westport Flea Market was a curious little shop called Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. This shop sold oddities from around the world, including unique primitive art, collectibles, jewelry, strange antiques, and so much more. Who owned it? Well, an eccentric and flamboyant guy named Bob. Bob Berdella, to be exact. But Bob would soon earn himself a different nickname. This is True Crime IRL, and I'm Kelly Barron's Brink. This is the story of Bob Berdella, the Kansas City Butcher. Welcome, folks. Thanks for joining me for episode 32 of True Crime IRL. As you may have already known, I am at the 2021 True Crime Podcast Festival right now in Kansas City. I'm here with lots of your favorite true crime podcasters this weekend, including Colts Crimes and Cabernet, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, True Crime Bullshit, Already Gone, Justice Delayed, and Generation Y, just to name a few. And since I'm here, I thought it was only fitting to cover a well-known case from the Kansas City area. I know it's been done before. In fact, Generation Y did a really great episode on it a few years back, so check that out. But it's still a case that a lot of people really haven't heard of, and it's kind of crazy because it's one of the most brutal serial killer cases that I have ever heard of. And before I get to the heart of the story, I have a huge favor to ask. Will you help me grow? (laughs) Seriously, though, if you like this show, will you please help me out and give me a five-star rating and a positive review? It would really make my day. And you know, you know, spread the word. If you have a friend who loves true crime, tell them about True Crime IRL. And another thing, I absolutely love interacting with other true crime enthusiasts on social media, and I would love for you to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok and tell me hi. You can find me on all of those at True Crime IRL, all one word. So, so do it. Reach out, do all the things, and I'm looking forward to meeting you on social media. Now for a quick word from our sponsor. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Now... Let's get back to the show. So I'm going to focus for a while on Bob Berdella's 
life, even though he is a monster and I hate to do it. But because like in most of the cases I cover, I am not only interested in the victims. I am interested in the victims, but I I, I want to analyze what makes a person into a monster like this. I find the human brain fascinating and it's interesting to note the similarities among serial killers' backstories. So I need to preface this by saying that I'm I'm totally not sympathizing with the killer here. I just want to drive that home. I'm not sympathizing with the killer. I just want to dive into what may have caused them to go this direction. You can and you probably should feel sorry for the child who they were when they went through all the bullshit they went through, but but not for the adult that they became who decided to go down this path. So a little bit about Bob Berdella. Bob Berdella Jr. was born in Ohio in 1949 into a very religious, strict Italian Catholic family. While he was a very bright child, he was basically a loner with very few friends. He tended to stay inside and he was an introvert, which was a stark contrast to his younger brother, Daniel, who was popular, outgoing, and excelled at sports. He would sort of live in his little brother's shadow, and it was apparent, unfortunately, that his father, Robert Sr., favored Daniel. He made comments a lot how Robert was inferior and Daniel was his favorite, and just a lot of shitty stuff like that. Young Bob Berdella had a speech impediment, and he wore thick glasses from the age of five. It seemed as though all things were working against Bob on the popularity front, and... As you might guess, he was mercilessly teased and bullied by his peers. Berdella's father physically and emotionally abused his children and often beat them with a leather strap. By the time Berdella reached puberty, he would discover that he was gay. But he kept this fact a closely guarded secret from his family and his friends, and he tried to fit in during his teen years by, you know, trying to be normal, having a girlfriend, and by all appearances, not showing that he was gay. As Berdella grew into a teen, his self-confidence also grew, but it did not manifest itself in the most positive way. He became very condescending, aloof, and, well, rude. He was especially negative towards women. At 16, Robert and the whole Berdella family would suffer a big trauma when Robert Sr. would suffer a Christmas Day heart attack and die suddenly at the age of just 39 years old. Robert would lean on his religious background to try to get through this difficult time, but ultimately, he would later denounce organized religion as a whole. He would grow further withdrawn and would retreat into his own little world when his mother remarried shortly after his father's death. He did not get along with his stepfather and he was angry. He was angry about losing his father, angry about his mother moving on so quickly, and angry at the world in general. He would isolate himself and lean into solitary hobbies such as art, painting, stamp collecting, and writing to foreign pen pals. Learning about faraway cultures from these pen pals would actually later be his inspiration for opening his oddity shop in the 1980s. Through college, Berdella would receive high praise from his professors due to his academic excellence. And shortly after that, he would relocate to Kansas City, where he would attend the Kansas City Art Institute. 
He continued to grow as a scholar, that is, until he began using drugs and alcohol heavily and acting as sort of the campus drug dealer. He was now openly gay and able to be himself, but the real Bob Berdella wasn't as great as the image he had previously tried to portray to others. And this is where the dark side would grow. He would begin to torture animals, but he would call it art. His professors and peers disagreed with that. And after he decapitated a duck, killed a chicken, and harmed a dog, trying to pass it as art, his reputation around school would quickly become tarnished. People were very turned off by him, and he would also be in and out of jail frequently for drug charges. Berdella would spiral into a very different world than the one he grew up in. He would begin to spend the majority of his time with male prostitutes, drug addicts, petty criminals, and runaways. He was adamant, though, that he was merely trying to help these individuals get their lives back on track. But he really wasn't in any position to be able to help anyone with all the baggage he himself brought to the table. As the years went by, Berdella would lose all of his family and friends from his previous life prior to the drugs and debauchery. And his only real friends left were sex workers and drug addicts. And he would use these people for sex and for companionship. In 1982, Bob would fulfill a dream of his by opening his shop, Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, at the Westport Flea Market. Although this was his passion, he really didn't make enough money through the shop to support himself, and he seemed to constantly be struggling financially. Berdella would make friends with one of the fellow merchants at the flea market, Paul Howell, as well as Paul's son, Jerry Howell. Jerry was somewhat of a troubled teen who had a drug problem and was in and out of trouble with the law. He was also secretly a male prostitute, and Berdella claims to have sort of taken on a role model figure to Jerry by helping him out when he had legal and financial issues. But it wouldn't be long until Berdella took advantage of his position in Jerry Howell's life, and his seemingly good intentions turned sinister. Because Jerry Howell would be Berdella's first victim, the first of many. And this is where he goes from the eccentric Bob Berdella into the brutal Kansas City Butcher. Like many other nights on July 4th, 1984, Berdella provided 19-year-old Howell with drugs, and he was going to give him a ride into the next town for a fun night out. But they would never make it there. After taking Valium and various other drugs, Howell would pass out, only to wake up bound to Berdella's bed, where he would stay for the next 28 hours. Over the course of the next day, Berdella repeatedly drugged, tortured, raped, and violated him with foreign objects, all while Jerry Howell begged and pleaded to be let free. And I'm just glossing over the details here of what Berdella did to Jerry Howell. When I say he tortured him, I mean he tortured him. First off, Berdella's victims were people he considered friends and people who trusted him, including Jerry Howell. But Berdella just delighted in inflicting pain on these victims. 
He bound them and restrained them with rope, tape, leashes, and dog collars. He gagged them. He would administer painful electric shocks to his victims and apply chemicals like bleach or drain cleaner to their eyes, rendering them blind. He even would caulk their ears shut so they couldn't hear anything. He injected drain cleaner into their vocal cords to prevent them from crying out, and he viciously sodomized them with numerous foreign objects, including his fist puncturing their anal cavities. Just try to think of the most horrendous torture you can possibly imagine, and this is what the Kansas City Butcher did to his victims, including Jerry Howell. Berdella claimed that Howell either asphyxiated on his own vomit, or it was the combination of the gag and the medicines being too strong for him to be able to catch his breath, and that he died in Berdella's bed. After Jerry died, Berdella would state that he attempted to resuscitate him to no avail, so instead he drug his body to the basement. He suspended Howell's body above a large cooking pot and made several incisions to his inner elbows and jugular vein, and he left Jerry's body suspended overnight to allow the blood to drain from the corpse. The following day, he dismembered Howell's body using a chainsaw and boning knives before wrapping all the pieces in newspaper and trash bags and then placing the bags outside for a garbage crew to collect and take to the landfill. So Berdella just disposed of Jerry Howell's body like trash. And that was the end. But Jerry Howell's father would suspect when his son turned up missing that Berdella probably had something to do with it. Paul Howell, Jerry's dad, would report to police that Berdella was the last person to have seen his son alive and that he knew Berdella was giving him a ride. Berdella would claim, though, that he did give Jerry a ride dropped him off with his friends, and that he must have met his demise after the two had already parted ways. And due to the lifestyle that Jerry lived, this could have seemed plausible to investigators. Jerry Howell may have been Berdella's first victim, but he would not be the last. In April of 1985, 23-year-old Robert Sheldon would show up at Berdella's door like he had many times before as a former boarder of Berdella's. He would stay a couple days before the butcher would decide to use Sheldon as a way to take out some of the anger and frustration he had towards the world. For three days, Sheldon would endure horrific torture as Berdella poured drain cleaner in his eyes, inserted needles under his fingertips, bound his wrists with wire to permanently attempt to damage the nerves in his hands, and filled his ears with caulking to render him deaf. Berdella would hastily suffocate Robert Sheldon when a worker came by the house unexpectedly to repair his roof, and then he would dismember his victim in the bathtub and dispose of his body. Just weeks later, Berdella found an acquaintance of his who had helped him in the past with yard work, Mark Wallace, hiding in his tool shed to seek shelter from a severe thunderstorm. As had been the case with Robert Sheldon, Berdella invited him into his house. Given the circumstances of this terrible storm, Wallace was noticeably anxious, and Berdella asked if he would like him to inject him with chlorpromazine to calm down and relax him a bit. Wallace willingly accepted the offer, and 30 minutes later, Berdella decided to render him captive. 
Berdella carried Wallace up to a second-floor bedroom where he endured a day of captivity and torture, including the application of alligator clips to his nipples to deliver electric shocks to his body. According to Berdella, one hour after experimenting with hypodermic needles by inserting them into various muscles on the victim's back, Mark Wallace died of a combination of the drugs, the gag, and lack of oxygen. He noted this victim's time of death as being 7 p.m. on June 23rd. And the reason we know that exact date and time of death is because, well, Berdella kept a detailed journal outlining not just Mark Wallace's death, but that of every single one of his victims. He described all the experiments he conducted on his victims and every form of torture he inflicted upon them, along with their reactions. This journal would later help police identify his victims and put him behind bars. But first, there would be many more victims to go into this notebook. And if you thought what he did before was bad, the next few rounds of torture were unimaginable. In September of 1985, James Ferris, another acquaintance of Berdella's who would occasionally ask for help or a place to stay, called Berdella asking if he could crash with him for a short stint, and Berdella agreed, knowing exactly what he was going to do with him. Berdella drugged him with crushed tranquilizers he had hidden in food, and then he tied him to his bed before torturing him almost constantly over a 24-hour period. The torture included repeatedly administering electrical shocks to the shoulders and testicles for up to five minutes in each session, and then acupuncture via hypodermic needles to the back and the genitals. Ferris gradually became delirious, but Berdella continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds at a time, and he died shortly after that. Berdella's next victim, Todd Stoops, was a 23-year-old drug addict and occasional prostitute who, alongside his wife, had twice lived briefly at Berdella's house in 1984. After Stoops and his wife moved out of Berdella's home the second time, Berdella did not see them again until a chance encounter on June 17, 1986, when he ran into Todd. Berdella invited him to his house with an offer of lunch and with an added incentive of sex because Stoops had stated he needed $13 to purchase drugs. Berdella would later tell investigators that he had been extremely physically attracted to Stoops, and this time, his victim was held captive for two weeks before he died. Berdella used electrical shocks through Stoops' closed eyes in an attempt to blind him, and he injected drain cleaner again into his vocal cords to try to silence his screaming. During the second week of his capture, Berdella ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge, and a forensic pathologist would later testify that this would ultimately cause an infection that would put Stoops into fatal septic shock. By his final day, Stoops was so weak that he couldn't keep food or liquids down, and he was unable to breathe in a sitting position. He would perish moments later. In the spring of 1987, Berdella became friendly with a 20-year-old named Larry Wayne Pearson. 
This casual friendship began when Pearson entered his shop and explained to Berdella that, as a child, he had always had an interest in both witchcraft and wizardry, and Berdella had a lot of items pertaining to those interests in his store. Shortly after that, Pearson temporarily lodged with Berdella and willingly performed chores around his home as a means of paying rent. According to Berdella, he didn't initially intend to hold Pearson captive, but he changed his mind when the young man began jokingly referring to his former practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. So that evening, Berdella ensured that Pearson became intoxicated before injecting him with chlorpromazine and moving him down to the basement. There, he bound Pearson's hands above his head and tied him up with rope and then injected Pearson's vocal cords with drain cleaner like he did his other victims. He then brought down an electrical transformer to the basement to administer electrical shocks. According to Berdella, Pearson was by far the most cooperative of his six murder victims. On the fifth day of his captivity, he had already endured horrific torture. He had been shocked repeatedly, and Bordella had broken several bones of one hand with an iron rod to render him submissive. But Bordella decided that Pearson had earned his trust. And as a reward for that, Pearson was moved to the second floor. With Berdella first informing him that if he continued to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict as much pain upon him as he had done while he was in the basement. Throughout the last six weeks of captivity, Pearson trained himself to do everything in the way that Berdella preferred so as not to upset him. But after six weeks of captivity, he literally just could not take it anymore. Pearson deeply bit into Berdella's penis during a sex act and screamed that he could not do this anymore. And in response, Berdella killed Pearson by bludgeoning him with a tree limb and then suffocating him. Before heading to the hospital, though, for his bite wound, Berdella first dismembered Pearson's body, but placed his head in a plastic bag in his freezer. There would be one final victim before Berdella's reign of terror would be over. 22-year-old male prostitute Christopher Bryson was lured to Berdella's house upon the promise of payment for sex in March of 1988. Bryson was knocked unconscious with an iron bar, then bound to Berdella's bed, where he was subjected to similar methods of abuse and torture endured by previous victims. Although in Bryson's case, Berdella repeatedly swapped his eyes with ammonia. After several days, Berdella explained to Bryson he had begun to trust his captive and that although he was willing to discuss aspects of the abuse and torture he was receiving, there would be no negotiations pertaining to his sexual abuse. Berdella finished this discussion with a stern warning. I've gotten this far with other people before and now they're dead because of the mistakes they've made. By the third day of his capture, Bryson had earned some degree of trust from Berdella. Berdella seemed more lenient with Bryson than he had with any of his previous victims. He allowed his hands to be tied in front of him rather than above him, and he allowed Bryson to watch TV and have control of the remote. A few days into his stint with Berdella, he managed to break free of his restraints by burning through them using a book of matches Berdella had forgotten about and left in the room within reach while he was at work. 
Bryson then managed to escape from the house by jumping from a second floor window, wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck and severely breaking bones in his foot in the process. He ran towards a meter reader walking across the street on the other side, and he shouted to them to call police, who arrived just minutes later. Two officers would discreetly keep watch of the property while Chris Bryson was taken to the hospital to be treated for his injuries. After Bryson was stable enough to speak to police, he would describe how his attacker subjected him to four days of sexual abuse and torture. Bryson also told police that Berdella had shown him Polaroid images of men who appeared to be dead, explaining that these had been previous individuals he had unsuccessfully attempted to collect as his sexual slaves. Berdella also told Bryson that he had no intention of ever allowing him to leave his property, and that if he didn't comply, he would either be subjected to greater levels of torture than what he had already endured, or simply killed. On the afternoon of Bryson's escape, Berdella was arrested on charges pertaining to the sexual assault of Christopher Bryson. He declined to allow officers into his home, but luckily, they had a search warrant. Investigators discovered the bedroom on the second floor, the burnt ropes attached to the posts at the foot of the bed, along with the electrical transformer plugged into the wall with wires leading to the bed. They found the metal tray containing syringes, small bottles apparently containing prescription drugs, swabs, eye drops, a long iron pipe, various lengths of rope, and leather belts. Everything was exactly as Chris Bryson described, and there was no disputing that Berdella had a real-life torture chamber set up in his home. Police continued their investigation over the rest of the property where they uncovered a human skull inside a closet a partially decomposed human head in the backyard, and several human vertebrae. They also found human teeth in envelopes. They stumbled upon a hacksaw and a miter saw in the basement, as well as a chainsaw covered in blood, flesh, and hair. Luminol tests revealed that the floor of Berdella's basement and two plastic trash cans had previously been covered in blood. Nearly 400 photographs were found of various male victims, both alive and deceased. This included images of Christopher Bryson and many other men actively in the midst of being tortured. The search also uncovered numerous restraints and sexual devices, pornographic literature, hypodermic needles, and a book on narcotics. On top of a bedroom dresser, officers discovered a notebook holding detailed torture logs he had maintained for each and every victim. They also found newspaper clippings from the Kansas City Star regarding a missing young man named Jerry Howell. Additionally, they found the wallet and driver's license belonging to a missing person named James Ferris. So, the disturbing photos confiscated from Berdella's home showed more than 20 men bound and posed. But, Berdella was adamant that the six men he confessed to killing, plus Chris Bryson, who escaped, were his only victims. The Kansas City Police Department did suspect Berdella of involvement in at least two other disappearances, but no charges were ever filed in those cases. 
These victims endured some of the most horrific pain, fear, and torture we have ever seen in a serial killer case. Yet, the story of the Kansas City Butcher isn't brought up all that frequently because it's been slightly overshadowed by other high-profile cases over the years. As part of a plea bargain to spare him from getting the death penalty, Robert Berdella pleaded guilty for each charge of murder for each victim, and he received six life sentences without the possibility of parole. Justice would ultimately be served on October 8, 1992, when Bob Berdella would die of a heart attack in prison at the age of 43. He followed in his father's footsteps, who also died of a heart attack close to the same age. I know this is dark, but I can't help but wonder what images flooded Bob Berdella's mind during his final moments. This has been True Crime IRL, and I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink, reminding you to follow me on Instagram at True Crime IRL and leave me a good review wherever you get your podcasts. And wait for it, lock your doors, people. You never know what kind of monster might be lurking. So lock those doors. Just do it. Lock them. Click it. Lock it. Just lock the doors. Bye bye. 